0: Christ, to herald him, I think he is the answer for everyone here this morning, whether you are here checking out the church, whether you've been a believer for many years, or whether you don't know the Lord, Jesus Christ is indeed the answer, and I trust that he's the reason why your heart was anticipating being here this morning. Uh, I know it's great to fellowship and to sing and to talk and kids and all that stuff, but he is really the ultimate reason why we're here. Uh, Just want to send greetings from Faith Bible Church down in South Orange County. We consider you a dear, precious church. Uh, I've known your leaders for many years. I do remember that meeting when Dan threatened me across the table at Chili's, and I didn't feel threatened because he's a little guy, and so I thought I could handle him pretty well, Um, but I'm thankful for the work that God has done in his heart. Thankful for the long friendship that uh, we've shared, thankful for James and Seren and the 20 plus years that we've known each other and uh, it's been a precious journey, great gospel friendship and many of you that we've known. So it's a privilege to be here and God has just in his unique way sovereignly ordained that uh, I have the privilege of being able to share Christ with you this morning. This morning I want to talk about a uh, topic that's familiar to all of us at some point in our lives and that is the issue of pain. Pain the issue of suffering, the issue of trial, the issue of struggle. Listen to one person's testimony of his very, very bad day. It was an accident report submitted to the Australian Workers' Compensation Board. He writes this, Dear Sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information in block three of the accident report form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident, You asked for a fuller explanation, and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building when I completed my work. I found out that I had bricks left over, which when weighed later were found to be slightly in excess of 500 pounds. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley which was attached to the side of the building on the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went down and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the bricks. You will note in block 11 of the accident report form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel, which was now proceeding downward at an equally impressive speed. This explains the fractured skull, minor abrasions, and the broken collarbone as listed in section three of the action report form. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of beginning to experience excruciating pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Now devoid of the weight of the bricks, that barrel weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight. As you can imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building... In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles, broken tooth, and several lacerations of my legs and lower body. Here, my luck began to change slightly. The encounter with the barrel seemed to slow me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks. And fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, as I lay there on the pile of bricks in pain, unable to move... I again lost my composure and presence of mind, and what did he do? He let go of the rope, and I lay there watching the empty barrel begin its journey back down onto me. This explains the two broken legs. I hope this answers your inquiry. Hopefully none of you have had a a day such as that day, but I realize that as sinful people living in a sinful world, that life at times can be very trying and difficult. And even God's people continue to face troubles and trials all throughout our lives. These trials come in all different shapes and sizes they are like a pile of rocks. And you might be feeling very calm and settled and you're kind of reclining in your lazy boy of life. Everything's going well and all of a sudden one of these rocks just comes crashing through your window. What is the rock in your life? What is the trouble that God has placed in your midst right now? Maybe your trouble is in the form of a stressful situation. Maybe it's financial stress. There's not enough money at the end of the month and you're struggling with the financial difficulties. Maybe it's relational stress. Maybe a relationship has soured for some reason and it's just not the same and the gap doesn't grow closer, it gets wider. Maybe it's in the form of suffering. Maybe some of you here are suffering from some health issue. Maybe you found out about a loved one, an accident, a disease, an unfortunate mishap. Or maybe it's just the daily frustrations and pressures of life. You look in your rearview mirror and you see the flashing red lights, or you come home to a house of squealing kids and you've got a massive headache, or for you moms, you've got 20 errands to run, three practices, three cities, five miles to feed, three loads of laundry. What is your trouble this morning? As you think about your trouble, ask yourself this question: how do I handle this trouble in my life? What is my reaction to this trouble? What is my response? What is my heart response to this sovereign, ordained trouble that God has allowed into my life? How do you deal with pain? How do you deal with disappointment? How do you deal with the emotional stress and all of the temptations that come with each and every trial? You've probably heard the story of the Staines family, veteran missionaries to India. Back in 1999, they were serving there, running a a medical clinic for lepers. The father and his two young sons, 10-year-old Phillips and seven-year-old Timothy, went to a a Christian camp to serve. And it was in a very uh, difficult part of the region. There were many militant Hindus that lived in this region, and they found out that the Christian missionaries were in their town, and so while Graham, the father, and his two sons slept in the car, they surrounded the car, they doused it with gasoline, and they lit it on fire. When the father and the sons woke up and they tried to get out, the, the mob kept them from exiting the vehicle and the flames torched the car as the crowd danced and shouted, justice has been done. The Christians have been cremated Hindu fashion and they stayed for over an hour just to make sure that the Christians had died. His wife Gladys and a daughter were left behind. They'd been operating this hospital for 34 years and two days after the murders, lepers dug the graves for the family while Gladys Staines consoled them as they wept." And she said shortly after this tragedy, she said these words, God has given me peace and I have never questioned His wisdom in allowing this tragedy. How how do you have that kind of heart response to the tragedy of tragedies? I, I can't think of anything that would be more severe, more intense, more painful than to lose my spouse and to lose my kids. And yet here is this woman that all of us long to be like, a woman with this kind of unshakable faith, no matter the severity of the trial, she rested and leaned on God. My heart yearns to be like this because when it comes to pain and when it comes to suffering and when it comes to trials, to be honest, I'm a wimp. I don't like pain. I don't like it when things get all thrown out of whack and there's disorder and chaos in my life. And yet it is possible for even someone like me it may be like you, that in the middle of your trial, that God's heart would be for you to have great hope and great joy and great faith. This is God's heart. He says in James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And therefore, this isn't some pie in the sky, pipe dream fantasy. It's not just some idealistic, and yet unrealistic reality for Christians. Men and women, this is God's heart for you, and this is the hope that he offers each of us this morning. How can you go through life? How can you face difficulties and trials and tests, and in the middle of a storm, that you would find yourselves with great peace and calmness and joy in your heart? We come this morning to a very familiar narrative in the Gospels. It's where Jesus walked on water. And in this narrative, we see four facets of the glory of Christ. This text is about Jesus. The Gospels are all about Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. And here specifically, we see Jesus Christ's glory in four distinct ways. And the whole point of this text The whole point of it is not just to feed our minds with more information about Jesus, but it's to take this information, this truth from this narrative and to fuel our hearts so that right in the middle of whatever trial you're going through, and I don't know what trials you're going through, but I imagine that every single one of us, whether it's a little annoying pebble that's being tossed on your head every day or whether it's a huge rock slide and a boulder that has destroyed your life, That regardless of where you are, that right in the middle of the storm, we would be able to see Jesus and have a right response to him, that we would worship him in the middle of our storms. Let me pray. Our Father, we we thank you that you love us and that you are all wise and all sovereign and all merciful and all loving to your people. Father, we thank you that you are indeed our great heavenly father. And just like any father in this room, you love your children. And you love them with an infinite, immeasurable love. And Father, I pray that, Lord, you would be gracious to every heart this morning. That we would be open to receive your word. And that we would, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father have our hearts changed. You are the great melter of hearts. You are the one who humbles us. You are the one who gives us faith. You open eyes to see the glory of your great son. And so Father I pray that you would do that. Be with my brothers and sisters here who are hurting. Whether it's a trial, whether it's discipline, whether it's physical suffering, whether it's watching a loved one suffer, oh God, may you come and remind them of just how much you love and how much you care for your people. We pray all of this, Lord, not because we want our lives to be easy, but we desperately want joy. And so, Father, may we be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, we pray. In your name, amen. Here's the first facet of Christ's glory. And if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 14, Matthew 14, and this is a familiar narrative text, Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. And the first facet of Christ's glory that I want us to see is his perfect providence, his perfect providence, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now, in the gospel chronology, this event follows the feeding of the 5,000. It's recorded in the gospels. And Matthew tells us that Jesus, and he uses an interesting word here, he made the disciples get into the boat. The word here means to force or to compel someone to do something. Why is Jesus so adamant about sending the disciples away so quickly? I mean, they just had this victorious miracle. Thousands were fed. They want to make Jesus Christ the king. That's the reaction of the crowd. They just want to usher him to be the king. They want to pray Jesus and the disciples down to Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government and that's what the Jews are thinking and yet here Jesus says no man and he forces them and he says look you guys got to get in this boat and I'll meet you on the other side and the reason why he does this is because he governs his universe with perfect providence we see it in two ways first Jesus's plans were always governed by his father's will they want to make him king and you know what, he, he will be recognized as king. He is king and Lord right now in a way. He rules the hearts of his people. He rules sovereignly the universe. But there will be a time when Jesus returns and he will be acknowledged publicly by all as the king. But the timing wasn't right. The crowds wanted to make him king. They want to force him to become their king. But this was not God's plan. And therefore Jesus submits himself to the timetable of his father. He would only do what his father willed for him to do at any given moment. But second, his plans are always perfect and this is what I want you to see because note What this compelling directive of Jesus led the disciples into down in verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Jesus says, look, you guys better get in this boat, and where does it leave them? It leads them smack in the middle of this horrible storm, And men and women, this is what we need to see in the middle of our trials, that God is sovereign, that he is in absolute control over everything, every person, every circumstance, every subatomic particle, God sovereignly controlled it. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him all things are created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in Christ all things hold together. Jesus not only created the universe, guess what? He controls it, he sustains it, and he works it all out. So that it does not fall apart. You see, in the middle of trial, what God wants us to see is the perfect providence of Christ. That's what we need to see. That your trial and the blame of your trial is not connected to some person or even some decision. But what undergirds every single thing that happens in this life is the all-wise, all-loving sovereignty of God. And If you don't believe that, you'll go crazy. You have no ground, no firm footing beneath you if you don't believe that. I'm so thankful that when I look at God... And Christ sitting next to him and the Holy Spirit that God is not worried. He's not chomping on his fingernails. He's not angry. He's not fidgeting. He's not wondering what's going to happen if this person does this or this circumstance goes this way or if the stock market crashes. Jesus sees and he knows the beginning from the end. How? Because he planned it. And remember that God's providence is all working together for our good. Romans 8:28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Right now as you sit and as you wait in the suffering and in the stress of your trial, just take a moment to to reflect upon this truth that, that that's there in your life because God the Father Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit sovereignly ordained for that trial to be in your life. That's why it's there. The unexpected bill that you receive is there because God ordained it to be there. The ailment that you're struggling with physically is there because God put it there. The person that's caused you enormous pain and suffering is there, why? Because God sovereignly put him or her there. Therefore our hearts can rest. Note verse 23, there's the first aspect, the perfect providence of Christ. Notice the second facet of Christ's glory we need to see. The prayerful passion of christ verse twenty three after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. So the picture is he sends the disciples in the boat they 're being battered by a storm, and he 's alone on the mountain to pray, and the question is, what was he praying about? Who was he praying about? conjecture at this point would say maybe for the disciples maybe for the faith of the disciples that would be my guess but that's conjecture we don't know the text doesn't tell us but you know what it's not conjecture when it comes to who Jesus Christ is praying for right now Romans eight thirty four. listen to this verse who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Present, continual, tense, Jesus Christ is always interceding on behalf of his people. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just think about this for a moment. Right now, in heaven, God sits on his throne. He's surrounded by these incredible angelic beings and the saints, the souls of all the saints who have died and who are with God in heaven. And sitting next to God the Father is Jesus Christ, the Son in his risen, glorified body. And and God, and God is a complex being. Jesus is a complex being. He can do many things at once. And one of the things that Jesus Christ is always doing as he sits next to the Father is he's pleading on behalf of you and me. He's praying for us. And the reason why he prays for us is because this is his expression of love. He prayed for the disciples in John 17 on the night before he departed and he prayed for them in verse 13. But now I come to you. Does Jesus say, I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, who said that's the disciples and that's you and me and all the saints of the New Testament age. He says that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus Christ continually pleads and intercedes on your behalf, on my behalf and he he prays for our heart to be filled with joy, the fullness of joy. Whatever difficulty or trial you're going through, remember right now in the court of heaven, Jesus Christ is praying for you because he loves you. And he's praying that your joy would be made full. He didn't send you in the middle of the storm and then he abandoned you. No, he sovereignly ordained the storm. But he also intercedes on our behalf for joy in the middle of the storm. Here's a third facet of his glory, the powerful presence of Christ. Verse 24 and 25, but the boat was already a long distance from the land battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus is praying and the scene immediately cuts back to what's going on in the boat, the disciples. And what's happening is they're probably two or three miles from shore. They've rowed a total of three to four miles, according to John. They're being battered. Literally, the the word is they're being tormented by the waves because they're rowing into a headwind. And it's in the worst part of the night. It's in the fourth watch, which is from three to six a.m. So they've been on the sea for at least six hours, possibly up to nine hours fighting the storm. And it's interesting to note that Jesus waits. He doesn't get to them right at the start. No, he waits after this entire time, at least six hours. He could have helped them hours ago. He could have. But he waits until they're desperate. And what does he do? It says simply, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, why, why does Jesus choose to appear in this fashion? I mean, he's Jesus. You know, he could have swam. I mean, he could have just been swimming really fast, and he could have come along the side of the boat and swam, or he could have just jumped in another boat or made a boat, you know, and just rowed real fast, and, you know, he's in the other boat, and he's rowing, and he's just like cruising along and doing circles. I mean, why does he appear in this fashion to... The disciples. Well, interestingly, Mark, in chapter 6, verse 48, he gives this account. He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, what that means is not he was just gonna cruise on by and say, hey, guys, you know, keep struggling. I'll see you at the other side. That's not what that phrase means. What it means is that he wanted to come alongside of them while he's walking on the sea. Why? So that they could see him walking on the sea. He wants the disciples to see that he has sovereign power over all things, that he is God. And now they're in the middle of their storm and here is the God of the universe right there with them. Verse 26, look there. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They don't recognize Jesus. And so they see this figure and the only conclusion that they can come up with is, this is not normal. This can't be happening. It must be a ghost. And literally the text is, they are just out of control screaming. I mean, it's amazing that Matthew records for us Coherent words because the other gospel writers are simply describing this absolute panic on this. But they are just screaming. They are so terrified. And yet, look at verse 27. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Matthew uses this word three times, immediately. Immediately immediately and here they are in a dead panic. They are frightened out of their minds and immediately Jesus spoke and He gave them hope and He says, take courage, cheer up, take heart. Now for those of you who, who are suffering or if you have suffered, if someone just comes up to you and says, hey cheer up be happy (laughs) you know don't worry why why are you so down you know i mean every day should be just a zippity-doo-dah day come on what's wrong with you if you just say those words and there's not some grounds to what you're saying those words are very trite and they're very pithy and they're not helpful at all right but here Jesus says here take courage and then he provides the grounds the necessary grounds for how they could take courage what does he say he says it is i now, now don't miss the simplicity of what Matthew is saying the little greek phrase literally means i and then what I am. Take courage. It is "I, I am." And when you hear those words, "I am in the New Testament coming out of Jesus' mouth, like, "Before Abraham was," what? I am." He is alluding back to Exodus 3:14, and he's saying, "Look, take courage. It's me, the great I am. The God of all sovereign sufficiency and the reason why you don't need to fear and the reason why you can take courage in the middle of your trial is because the great I am is with you. He proved his deity by his words. He walked on water. But he also pronounced his deity and he said, I am. And so take courage. Stop being afraid. Stop being angry. Stop being stressed out. Stop being anxious. Stop worrying. Why? Because the great I am is with you. The fear, the fear that Jesus speaks of, he says, do not be afraid isn't natural fear. God created us with a good sense of fear. You know, if if you're hiking in the mountains and a grizzly bear comes upon you, it's not sinful at that point to fear. Okay, that's not what's going on here. That is a good mechanism. That fear should spark adrenaline and you should do something. I don't want to give you an advice that you might use inadvertently if you do face a grizzly bear. Well, Pastor Coe said to run and the bear bit my leg off. No, just you figure it out. But that fear is, is good. Right? It's good to have a sense of that's not what he's talking about here. When Jesus says, do not be afraid. He's talking about the kind of fear that's rooted in unbelief. And fear rooted in unbelief can come in many forms. Here the disciples are fearing their lives. They're fearing, fearing their circumstances. They think they're going to die. Other times we can fear people. We can become people pleasers. We can fear their ridicule. We can fear their rejection. We can sinfully fear. You moms know this. You can sinfully fear for your children's well, well-being. That fear can paralyze you as a parent. We can sinfully fear our financial future. And when this kind of sinful fear that's rooted in unbelief grabs hold of our hearts, we're in trouble. Our minds can start making up all sorts of things. The Bible calls it presumption. That's what the disciples are doing. This is not a ghost But they are absolutely certain that they've seen a ghost. Is that reality? Not at all. And yet, many Christians do the exact same thing when their hearts are paralyzed by fear. They just start making up things. They make up conversations as they drive home from church. They lie awake at night thinking and pondering the what ifs. They start to assume and they presume on people. What if this happens? What if that happens? What, what if this person does this? What if this person said this? Paralyzes us as our uncontrolled emotions cripple us spiritually. And we sink in despondency and depression because it's not the spirit that's in control, it's our sinful emotions that are running out of control and sadly are in control of our lives. This kind of fear brings about a lot of anger, If you're an angry person because of trials, that's just a symptom of what's going on deeper in the heart, it can bring out a lot of self-pity. We lash out at others, we we mistakenly believe that they are the cause of my sinful reactions. So how do you overcome it? How do you overcome it? It's simple, Galatians 2.20 says, to walk by faith. Isaiah forty-one ten says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my right, righteous right hand. How do you overcome this fear? You believe. You trust. You trust in the sovereign, all-powerful, self-sufficient God that he is with you and that he'll never forsake you because he loves you. And that love was secured, brothers and sisters, by one final act of the Savior at Calvary, was it not? Because he died, because he rose again, our relationship with God is everlastingly secured. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I was reading this morning, 1 Samuel uh, 28 to 30 in in verse in chapter 30 you know you guys probably know what happened David he's feigning like he's loyal to the Achish the king of Gath of the Philistines you know and and he goes out and Philistines going to go against Israel in a war and now David's in a dilemma how is he going to fight against his own people and God sovereignly intervenes right and the commander is saying, no, we don't want this guy. He, he's going to betray us in the middle of the battle. And so the king says, look, go back. And David's like, no, I want to fight. Really, he didn't, right? So he goes back and these band of marauders have come and they've taken their kids and their wives and everything. And they've burned down their city. And it says that the, the, the band of these men that are now traveling with David are angry with David. They are ticked off. No one is for David. He doesn't have friends in Israel. Now these men that have surrounded him, these four, five, 600 men who have surrounded him are against him because they're feeling the pain. And it says there in verse six, I believe, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. That's right. He went to God. He trusted God. And you know what, we can do the same. Whatever fears or worries we have in life, Jesus is with us right now. So you can go to him, you can ask him, you can believe on his word, you can trust his faithful promises, you can thank him, you can talk to him, you can express, even as the psalmist do, psalmist does in the Psalms, you can just express the hurt and the struggle that you're facing, that's okay. It's okay just to go to God and say, God, I'm mad. I'm hurting. God, I'm struggling. God, what is going on? But God, would you help me? Would you help me? Here's the fourth facet of his glory. The permanent patience of Christ. Look at verses 28 to 31. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter's an interesting guy, isn't he? I mean, this guy is very emotional. On one point, he is just screaming. And then when he realizes it's Jesus, I mean, which one of us would have thought of this? Would any of you have said, hey, that's a cool thing. I want to do that too, Jesus. Peter does this and Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Jesus. So this is another miracle that's taking place. Jesus enables Peter to do the supernatural thing. But notice what happens. Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt What happens? He's doing fine. He's got his eyes on Jesus. But all of a sudden, fear overcomes his faith. He starts looking at the waves. He starts looking at the storm. And immediately, he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And immediately, he sinks. And that's so true of us, isn't it? As soon as we take our eyes off of Christ, we start to look at everyone and everything but Christ. What happens? Fear overcomes us. We start to waver. Panic sets in. Our faith grows weak. We focus on circumstances. We focus on problem people, pain, trouble. We focus on ourselves. Why me, Lord? We focus on our sin. Maybe it's my sin that's caused all of this. And as soon as we turn the eyes of our hearts away from Jesus, we will no longer be enabled to do the supernatural. We won't be carried by God's power. We won't be carried by God's grace. And you know what? Instead, we'll just do what sinners do. We'll respond as sinners respond. We will be like fleshly people, predictable people. In other words, we won't be like Christ will be just like any other ordinary person out in our world in our response to difficulty. You see, men and women, the Christian life is first and foremost a life of faith. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in his earthly body, I live by what? I live by what? Faith. That's the foundation to our Christian life. It's continually trusting in Christ for his joy. It's pleading with God saying, God, there are so many turbulent emotions going on in my heart right now. I can't sleep, I can't think, I can't eat. But God, your grace is sufficient. You're sufficient. Would you enable my heart right now to have a peace that passes all understanding? You can't do that on your own. If you're in the middle of a trial and you're trying to walk it alone and you've got an arm's distance against Jesus, I don't need your grace. I'll do this on my own. You'll never, you will never live a supernatural life. Won't happen. No one can walk on the water on their own. Only Jesus can give us that divine ability. And that's how we get it. We trust him for it. We lean on him. And know what Jesus does. Again, the third use, immediately, immediately. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. You you can put that phrase in any word order. It means the same thing. Lord, save me save me and Jesus doesn't sit there walking on the water hey pal you wanted this not me you know you fend for yourself I'm going in the boat or I'm gonna walk I'll see you on the other side no immediately immediately and personally and physically Jesus grabs hold of Peter and while he does so he asks this question you of little faith why did you doubt My reaction at this point would be, Jesus, come on, a sermon right now? (laughs) You know, are you gonna, do I need to hear this right now? And yet it was important for Peter to know. Two applications I think that we can draw from this. First of all, this is a mild rebuke, it's a mild rebuke for Peter's small faith. It's never okay to doubt Christ. It's never okay to turn away from Christ and to turn to someone or something else. William Hendrickson writes this, doubt or wavering had entered Peter's heart because for a moment he had looked away from Jesus, that is, he had failed to rest the eye of his faith upon the master. Jesus wants us to walk in faith in him and that's not impossible. It's joyfully doable if we come to an end of ourselves and lean wholly on Christ. Some people, when they get in the middle of trial, they're like, hey, it's okay for me to be angry. It's okay for me to be self-pitying. It's okay for me to sinfully respond with little faith. It's okay for me to be fearful. Why? Because that person to blame, that person to blame, this situation to blame, my bank's to blame, my mortgage company to blame, on and on and on. And Jesus mildly rebukes Peter. And he says, look, Peter, just remember, it's not okay to have little faith. It's not okay to have fear overcome faith in me. It's a mild rebuke. But note the second that despite his wavering in faith Jesus still hears his cry for help and he rescues him. What a what a kind patient savior we serve. That he's not sitting there and saying, look, John, you're in the middle of your trial. You better have perfect faith or else I'm not going to help you. Peter just failed in faith. And yet there's this little glimmer of faith that's trusting in God. Lord, save me. And Jesus comes to him and he, and he rescues him even though he's drowning in the littleness of his faith, even though fear has overcome him, even though he's drowning in unbelief. That's such a good word to my heart because if I start thinking, you know what, I gotta get my act together and I gotta be perfect in faith and I just have to be this bold Hudson Taylor man of faith and then God will help me. No, that's not the case. 2 Timothy 2.13, even... If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If your faith is wavered, if you're thinking of checking out on this thing called Christianity, if you're becoming a cynic and a skeptic and you're saying, you're, you're saying you know, Christianity doesn't work, God's not real, he doesn't help people, Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope if your faith has been shaken. If it has wavered, don't lose hope. Call out to him and he will help you. What happens next? Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped instantly. And John tells us that the boat was at the land to which they were going. Just instantly, it's out of the storm. It's on the shore. And again, a demonstration of the power of Christ. So we see four facets of his glory. His perfect providence, his prayerful passion, his powerful presence, his permanent patience. But let's end with this. What do all of these pictures of the glory of Christ lead us to? Look at verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, certainly you are. Our God's Son. The heart that sees Jesus in the middle of the storm will worship Christ for who He is. Worship, it's adoration, it's praise, it's reverence, it's love, it's faith, it's joy. And note the ground of this worship. They worshiped Him saying, Here's the ground. Not you rescued us from death. It's not what's in quotes. Not you, you are the great God genie of the universe because we called to you and you helped us. It's not the grounds of worship. The ultimate grounds of worship is you are certainly God's son. Ground of worship for the believer is first and foremost rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and secured by the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. You are certainly God's son. Men and women, when you see Christ for who he is, you will worship God in the middle of the storm. Here they were, six to nine hours struggling physically, they're weary, their hearts are growing weary, they're struggling, they're 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 rowing, they're tired spiritually, they don't know what's gonna happen, they're frightened, and boom, just like that, in an instant, they are bowed in the boat with their faces to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And note, their hearts totally changed, filled with love. Rejoicing, thanksgiving, no longer filled with fear and worry, but with a peace that passes all understanding. Their hearts are humbled by the fact that Jesus Christ is with them. This is why Jesus allowed this to happen to the disciples on the night of the Sea of Galilee. He wanted them to worship him for who he is, for his glory, which is the highest expression of the Savior's love for them and men and women listen, God loves you so much. God loves this church so much that at times his love moves us into difficult situations so that the eyes of our heart would finally get off of ourselves and off of people and off of circumstances and he lovingly gets our eyes to focus on his son. That's why he does this. The issue is not the situation or the struggle that you're in. Stop blaming people. Stop blaming circumstances. Really the rightful one that you should blame is God. If you wanna point a finger at someone for the pain in your life, point it at God. Theologically, that's more accurate than if you go around saying, you, 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 you're all the cause of my pain, and therefore I don't want a relationship with you. It's not true. It's not true. Rather, God wants us to see him so that our hearts might be drawn in and melted by his incredible love. Last year, I'll leave you with this. Chris Tomlin came into town and some of you went to that concert, I remember seeing some of you at that concert. We, we went and for Christmas, we got our kids tickets and uh, we just love going to events like this. It's just so worshipful, isn't it? For those who've been there, it's just a worship night, you know, they call it the world's largest karaoke party. I mean, everyone is singing for two and a half hours and I was so looking forward to this, you know, but being the center I am, The night before, Karna and I had this huge conflict. I mean, we got into a big fight. Um, And we didn't get it resolved the night before this concert. It spills over to the next day. So I go to the office and, you know, I'm sitting there at the office trying to study, but you know what I'm doing? I'm building my case as the good defensive lawyer or prosecuting attorney that I am. I'm building my case and I'm sitting there. She did this. She said this. Okay, here's uh, another piece of evidence. You know, we'll submit this to the court. You know, and I'm just building the case. And so I get home. I said, you know, sweetie, we'll just, uh, uh, let's talk about this issue in the car. Right. We had about an hour drive from Orange County to Universal. And So, uh, you know, we got the kids to watch a movie. They're putting headphones on, you know. Hey, you guys want to watch a movie? Watch this. You know, they can't hear us. And so we're talking. And maybe some of you husbands have been there, but it's not getting better. (laughs) You know, you're shocked at that point. You're like how could this not be logically turning out the way I envisioned? It's just getting worse. And I'm like digging my grave deeper, you know? I'm like, is this deep enough, honey? She says, keep digging. You got to dig deeper. You know, just dig in, dig in, dig in. And so we don't get it resolved. And I'm like, this stinks because now we're going to this worship concert. <laughs> and we're having dinner with like close friends beforehand So we go to the dinner, like, hey, (laughs) good to see you. (laughs) You know, how are you guys? Well, we're good, we're good. And, you know, things were not good. Things were not good. So, you know, we go into the concert, and there's such a sense of hypocrisy and guilt and shame. And the music plays, and everyone is standing, and people are worshiping. And I was just sitting there like this, and I just didn't want to be there. The, the thing I wanted to do is I just wanted to go outside and just pray. That's all I wanted to do. So I just sat there, you know, like a bump on a log. And the worship is happening and, you know, but something interesting started to take place. The gospel was being sung to my heart in the lyrics of these songs. Be still, there is a river that flows from Calvary's tree, a fountain for the thirsty, your grace that washes over me. All the way my savior leads me, oh the fullness of his love, oh the sureness of his promise in the triumph of his blood. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing, love so amazing. And as I sat there with the arms of my heart folded to God, the gospel began to tear away at the hardness and it was being transformed by the power of the gospel. God's grace started to do its work and His love overwhelmed my heart. And in an instant, in an instant, I had not been affectionate with my wife for, since the time, Uh, the fight began. Usually we hold hands and we kiss and hug, little hug, little kiss, (laughs) you know. And there was none of that and God just melted my heart And the power of the gospel just changed me and I realized in that moment, man, I am a big sinner. And yet I have a great savior. And I just repented and I just said, God, I'm so sorry. And without words, I just reached my hand over and I grabbed my wife's hand and instantly being married for so long, she knew what was going on. She knew things were okay and tears streamed down her face and tears streamed down my face and the rest of the night was good. We were able to worship genuinely. Men and women, that's what being in the presence of God can do. Right now, as you struggle in the midst of whatever storm God has placed you in, you have one of two options. You can just keep relying on yourself, keep making excuses, keep blaming others, keep being angry, keep wallowing in self pity, keep blaming whatever. In your fears, and your anger will overcome you, and you will find yourself discouraged and very depressed. Or you can cry out to Jesus, and you can simply say, Lord, save me. Lord Jesus, would you just come, and would you just help me right now? Lord, I'm not asking for you to change the circumstance so that everything is good, God, would you just change my heart and would you fill my heart with a peace that passes all understanding? Would you fill my heart with your joy? Would you fill my heart with love so that I would love you, that I would love others, that I would rely on you in humble, dependent faith and trust? And men and women, that's the only option that will help. It's the only option that will ever, ever change the condition of our hearts as God's people. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we we come to you because we are weak and we are frail and we are stubborn and we are proud and we are angry and self-pitying, which is why we so need your help. We thank you for trials because we know that they just simply reveal what's really on the inside. I pray, Father, that as you reveal those areas, specific areas where maybe we're not walking in true dependence and humble faith on you, Lord, that you would give us hope and that this hope would be rooted and grounded, Lord in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his love, his patience, his providence, his prayer. Lord, he died, and because of his death, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not also with him give us all things in Christ? pray, Father, that you would help any individuals here, Lord, to lean on you right now. I pray for a cornerstone as a church. Lord, you love the church. You love this church. I pray that the eyes of all the dear brothers and sisters here would not be gazing at each other. Lord, that every single heart would be gazed at Christ. You are worthy of our gaze. You are worthy of our loyalty. You are worthy of our trust. So fill us, Lord, with that supernatural power that only you can give. We pray all these things for the good of your people and for the glory of your great Son. Amen.